Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. As you can tell, I was pretty excited about that. I saw the lights on. I'm from uh, North Carolina originally, <clears throat> which is in the south, and uh, this is Southern California, so I guess y'all tolerate Southerners okay. Uh, I serve in Southern Spain, speak Southern Spanish. We even have a word for y'all in Spanish, which is vosotros, and that, can, that translates just right. So uh, happy to be here. Uh, my wife is Beth. She's not here. I just called her a little while ago. She's in Seville, Spain, where we live. She says to say hello to everybody. Hopefully she won't call while I'm talking to make it live. So um, I was born and raised in Charlotte. And if you feed me enough grits and North Carolina barbecue, I can get pretty thick in my accent. Sweet tea and rocking on the porch. Um, when I was a boy, uh, we raised on a creek out south of Charlotte, and we uh, did a lot of fishing. So in case you ever go fishing and I'm here visiting, please take me along. And uh, we'd build rafts off of wood we'd steal from construction sites. We thought we were just borrowing it, but uh, we never gave it back somehow. So but we had a good time. We'd fish out turtles out of the creek, and, and uh, I had one friend that went after snakes all the time. I'm not sure why he did that, but we saw some pretty good-sized snakes. And I've got a lot of stories about that. I'll tell you another time, but... Suffice it to say, God called us uh, out of a background of sin to come to know him. I was about 14 years old. My wife was about 14. We didn't know each other at that point. We met in college and got married after the first year of graduate school. And uh, God allowed us to live in in North Carolina for 19 years. I was a a licensed social worker working in healthcare settings, hospitals, and home health agencies. My wife is a counseling psychologist. If you know me for very long, um, it's probably good that she understands psychology <laughs> living with me. <laughs> but we, uh, we have four children. We're blessed with uh, a son uh, who lives in North Carolina, and then a daughter lives in Spain near us, and then another son who is in the military. And um, when you saw the pretty lady in the yellow top and the guy sitting next to her, it looks kind of like me, but might be my younger brother. Um, that's really me, just that so you don't think she's with another guy. Um, I grew a beard because our third son is is on the front line in the war in, in the Middle East. So um, it's a prayer beard. People ask me about it. I encourage them to please pray for him. Three things, if you're taking notes, uh, for God's presence, God's protection, and God's provision. And then we have uh, one more son in North Carolina. He's getting ready to join the Army. we got two in the Air Force, one in the Army. I'm a peaceful guy, really. But uh, somehow all these boys wanted to go military, so that's, that's fine. My, my daughter is in the uh, diaper battalion. She has a little daughter, and she's got another war on her hands. It's, it gets messy, too. That's a, that's a pretty bad war. Some of y'all know about that. But um, we have three grandchildren, thankfully, and um, I can show you pictures, but that's not why I'm here. Uh, I used to laugh at people that were grandparents that showed pictures. I thought, that's kind of fuddy-duddy to do. But then when I got into it, it made a lot of sense. You know, when it's your grandchildren, suddenly it's like, of course they want to know. Look how beautiful and wonderful they are. But uh, anyhow, that's our background. God called us to Spain in 1998. It's been 15 years we've been over there. That's a long time to be away from home. But we get back three or four times a year. And I made a point that the next time I came to 
the States, I wanted to come right here to Valley Center and be with y'all. And uh, the pastor and his family are giving me wonderful hospitality. Uh, I recommend him highly and his family to y'all. So um, we're grateful to be prayed for and supported and loved by this church. Well, I want to take you to the Bible because I think that's why I'm standing up here. So let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 13. But before we do, I'll say one last thing. Uh, my wife and I are missionaries. We are supported through an organization called Camino Global. And I've got, if you come up to me, I'll give you a nice little bookmark. Isn't that fun? Don't you love bookmarks? Keeps your place real well. It's, it's English on one side, Spanish on the other, because we're a bilingual agency. We only work in Spanish-speaking countries. And so Spain's one of them. And yesterday I was in another one. I was in Mexico yesterday. I had a nice time training um, 24 pastors to use uh, special teaching materials in their local church. And so if you want to get involved and find out more about us, just take one of those little slips, like the pastor said, sign up. And uh, But I'll give you one of these for free if you ask me. Just come by and shake my hand or give me a cookie, I'll give you two. All right, Matthew chapter 13. And there's some good cookies out there. Matthew chapter 13, verses uh 51 and 52. Just to set the stage, uh, Jesus told his disciples a lot of stuff. Okay, that's not a very theologically sound word, stuff, but he did. He told them a lot of stuff. And every now and then he would stop to check and see how much they were understanding. So this is a verse that talks about that. He just finished telling them some really interesting parables. And he says, have you understood all these things? That's a big question. The disciples said, yes. And you kind of wonder, did they really? Because <laughs> what did they do after that? Everything seemed to go against that answer. But he says, then he said to them in verse 52, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So if you were to come to my house and sit down or any house in the Middle East um, or the Mediterranean world, and uh, I might offer you some cheese that might be aged three or four years. You know, the older the cheese gets, the kind of the better. Or my wife would offer you some bread. She makes homemade bread fresh out of the oven. And so that's kind of like things old and things new. Both are good, right? Okay. And the combination is wonderful. So that's the kind of thing he's saying here. It's a very much a, a, a homey type of a feel to it. A householder would be someone who is taking care of a, like a manager or a steward, a, a host, um, a butler, whatever you want to call them, uh, that knows what's in the pantry and knows what's coming out of the oven, and they combine that to take care of people's needs. Now, he applies that little saying, it's kind of a story, to um, living from the Word of God. There's some things that are very, very old, like in the Old Testament, some things that are very, very fresh and new, like we see in the New Testament, the combination is wonderful. So he calls them a scribe, a scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. Well, a scribe is a funny word because it had to do with back in the old days before there was a printing press and before the Arabs had discovered paper in the year 1000. A scribe was someone who hand copied onto papyrus or animal skins or any type of uh, old product that would retain information, they would copy the Old Testament. 
And because they spent so much time copying, the assumption was they were thinking about what they were writing. And then the assumption was they thought about it and pondered it, and it actually went deep into their soul, so they were able to teach about it. Classic example of a scribe from the Old Testament is Ezra. Remember the book of Ezra? If you ever read it sometime, he is known for not only being an excellent scribe, but a fantastic teacher. And he actually teaches the entire nation of Israel in a point of crisis when they're coming back from Babylon to the promised land again. So when Jesus says scribe, he means like the Old Testament classic teacher, someone who's very much instructed in what he's writing and copying and has the ability to express that in the local synagogue, the gathering place of the Jews for worship. So I want to take you to our main passage for today. Uh, that was just an introduction, so don't get too excited about that part. Let's go to the main thing of what we're doing. is Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And I'm going to give you an example in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, of a person who fulfills the role of a scribe in the kingdom of heaven. And that's the apostle Paul. Remember, when Paul describes himself, he says, tribe of Benjamin... That was a kingly tribe. The first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. A Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. Of course, he was a Roman citizen and a lot of other things. But when you're a Pharisee, I don't know if you all know much about that group of people. They were the um, men who described themselves as the ones trying to get back to the real faith of the Jewish people. They were restoring the society in a good way. Uh, they would be a little bit like our conservative Bible teachers today and people who want to get us to be serious about applying our faith. The problem was many of the Pharisees struggled with the sin of pride, arrogance, vanity, etc. And so because of that, Jesus sidelined them and said, you know, until you deal with that pride issue, you're not going to get very far. So Paul was a scribe of the kingdom of heaven. So uh, look at Acts 19, 8 through 10. We're going to read it together. Uh, but before we do, let's pray and ask God to take this deep into our hearts. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And what a precious gift it is to have a Bible in our own hands. How many nations, a people in persecuted lands throughout history and nowadays have nothing more than a few verses memorized or maybe a piece of one page. And we have the entire book. We have so many helpful study tools. Oh, may we be faithful, O oh God, to render our hearts before you, to humble ourselves and allow your word to speak deeply into our hearts. May it be so today. May we be shaken, changed, and developed out for good with the powerful input of the word of God in our lives. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And he, Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's it. That's all we're going to do right there. But there's enough in those three verses to give us plenty to think about today. 
I'd like you to pay special attention. I'll try to go a little slow in case you're taking notes. I think on the back of the bulletin there was room to write notes. Okay. If you write them, it'll make me feel good because I'm a professor and I love seeing people take notes. If you're just drawing pictures, that's fine too. It'll make me feel good anyway. So Paul was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city, the capital of the province of Asia Minor. I know it says Asia here, but don't think of China, India, and all the big Asia. This is just a little Asia, a province of the Romans that they called Asia on the west coast of Turkey. Everyone knows where Turkey is today? If you don't, there's a map out front as you walk in the door. Uh, Turkey is pretty easy to find. It's kind of on the other end of the Mediterranean from Spain. And so one of the sections, you know, a province, is kind of similar to what we call a county here. You all are in San Diego County. This was like Asia Minor County in the, in the land of, of Turkey. So that's where he was. In that particular city, Ephesus, was, it was the capital of Asia Minor province. So there was a huge temple there, a temple to the goddess Diana. And that temple was built in such a way it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know what that means? Seven wonders of the world. It means you had to go see it. It was important. It was something that you needed to see. So a lot of people did, and there was a thriving business of selling little shrines that we read about in chapter 20, or the end of 19, where it causes a riot, you know, and all those kind of things, because Paul's preaching is so strong and powerful that people are starting to disbelieve in Diana. Diana was a goddess of the hunt, and uh, the port city had a lot of sailors, a lot of merchants. It was the kind of the final spot where all the roads of that area converged. Sort of like San Diego, you know, where all the roads, you know, Interstate 15, Interstate 8, they all come together right there. And people would come for their little towns and villages and bring their, their merchandise to trade or to ship to other parts of the world. So it was very much a transportation communications hub. And those are the kind of places the Apostle Paul always went to. If you, if you follow his career, he's right in the center of the hub of activity over and over. Something to think about. So, he presents himself in the synagogue. Now, a synagogue is just like this. It's a small building, smaller than this, usually about half this size. And uh, the men would sit on one side, the women on another. And it was kind of interesting because they'd sing and they'd have scrolls they'd pull out. They'd have readings of the Torah or the, the prophets. And then they'd have a man would sit in a chair. They wouldn't speak in a pulpit. This is more of a Greek style of doing things. The Jewish people would sit in a chair and would teach from a chair, and they would inter interact. They'd ask questions and launch ideas and have debates. Um, do you all have any Jewish friends? You ever noticed how when you call them and you say, how are you doing? They'll say, who wants to know? And you say, well, I'm just checking on you. Well, why? You know, they ask a question. They answer a question with a question. We even see Jesus doing that, you know, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? He says, well, what do you think about John the Baptist? And they go, oh, well, you know. But they don't challenge him back. They start dealing with the question. That's a very Jewish thing. And so this style where we have developed in our churches of somebody standing up here at a pulpit and just talking and then you're passive listening, it's not very Jewish. It's more Greek. So the Jewish people had interactions. And so when we see this particular setting, where he presents himself in the synagogue, it was a very common thing for a Pharisee to do. Pharisees in their times, when they would travel, 
would visit from synagogue to synagogue. And when they came in the door, they would be recognized usually by what they wore. They had special robe things and stuff that hung from their tassels. And they'd say, ooh, there's a Pharisee. And the, the leader, the chief of the synagogue would say, brother, do you have a word? And they would invite him to come speak, to sit in the chair. And typically they'd do it. We see this with the Apostle Paul in several of his journeys. He is speaking in front of synagogues on a continuous basis. Well, that's very typical. Notice how long he stays in the synagogue. In verse 8, who knows? Three months. Good, some of you are still with me. Three months. Right. That's not very long. Three months. You go once a week, that's only 13 visits, right? Pretty small amount of exposure. And notice in that verse 9, some of them reacted poorly. And some of them uh, not only reacted poorly, but began to slander him publicly. Not only him, but what he taught. And then others went with him from the synagogue when he decided to depart from the synagogue. They went with him to a, like a rented hall inside of a local school. Now, these schools were common in the Greek world. It's where the philosophers hung out. Now, I'm a seminary professor, but in the old, old days, they'd call me a philosopher. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm real smart or that I've got deep thoughts. But it just means that someone who, who looks into the humanities and thinks deeply about subjects that aren't, you know, science and engineering and that kind of thing, but that studied letters and studied concepts and would talk about that in a persuasive way was called a philosopher. And so they would typically have these lecture halls. Um, this particular one was called the School of Tyrannus. And that word Tyrannus is a funny little word. It's kind of comical. Because if you know a friend that's pretty tall, you call him shorty, you know. Or if you got a guy that's stout, you call him tiny, you know. Or when you make fun of people by calling them the exact opposite of what they obviously look like. And or where they act, um, you say, you know, so and so is real talkative when they're actually very introverted. You know, he talks your ears off and everybody laughs because they know it's not true. Well, that's the case here. Um, whoever was in charge of that school must have been a pretty mild person, you know, not real forceful and outgoing, maybe one of these kind of a gentle type of teachers. And so they called him our tyrant, you know, the guy that's really giving it to us, that's tough on us, when really he was probably a nice guy. And it could have been Paul himself. We don't know. Some of the commentators go one way and some go the other. But notice what he teaches. It says here in verse 10, uh, he was teaching the word of the Lord Jesus. That's significant because it ties us directly back to Matthew 13 and also to Matthew 28, where the Lord says that when you go to make disciples, teach them to obey everything I have taught you that's this paul's doing exactly what it says in matthew 28 the word of the lord jesus now how how long two years great so if he's teaching the word of the lord jesus and they sneak in that little word luke says at the end of verse 9 reasoning daily how many days in a year and how many times two You can take your shoes off if you need to count. <laughs> right, 730. Excellent. So compare 13 times to 730 times. A little bit of a difference, right? 
and notice the results, the whole province of Asia, minor. That would be kind of like all of San Diego County. How many folks you got here in San Diego County? Three and a half million. million. Maybe they had about a half million in those times. That's still a lot of people. Everyone, Jews and Greeks, heard about this man and the one he was talking about. Everyone heard about it. So that's kind of just an overview of uh, what's in our passage. But let's look a little bit deeper. Let's try to interpret it a little bit. If you go back to verse 8, there is a word used there that when Paul, Paul went in the synagogue, spoke boldly. He reasoned and persuaded. The first word reasoned is a Greek word called dialegomai. Now, I'm not real smart about these kind of things. I had to go look in a book. But, you know, if you look in books, everybody got Bible study tools. You got commentaries. You got, you know, concordances, things like that. Those are great things to help you with your study so that you understand better. Many denominational splits and problems with heresies are all about misunderstanding words. You go back and look at it in the context, understand the original meaning, all those things clear up. It's mostly misunderstandings about words. Um, here's a little clue. This Bible that you have in your hands, this may come as a shock, was not written in English. Ooh, what does that mean? This is a translation. That means we're going to have to work harder to understand it. If you, if you knew and spoke the original language, it would be easier to understand. But every Bible that we typically have around the world are all translations. So we're doing the best we can, so we need help. We need tools. So I turned to a man named Vine, W.E. Vine, and looked up this word, Diolegomai. Some of you have Vine's word studies at home. That's a great book. Well, he says, and I'll read it slowly so that you can take a note if you want. He says this word, Diolegomai, from which we get the word dialogue in English, uh, is to think over things within oneself. To think over things within oneself. Also, it means to ponder. Think of the rocking chair on the porch. To ponder. Then, to converse, which means to talk about it. To dispute and to reason with others. Now, if you've got a concept, you're thinking it over, you're pondering it, you talk about it, you might be fighting with some people, you might be working with other people, you see all the different responses. That's the concept of dialegomai. Okay? He is actually, like it says here in the translation, he is reasoning. The second word is patho, P-E-I-T-H-O, P-E-I-T-H-O. Also from Vines, he's a good guy, Vines. He's not with us anymore. He's with the Lord, but he left some good books. Well, uh, Brother Vine says that that means to apply persuasion. To prevail upon. Sounds a little aggressive, doesn't it? To win over or to persuade. I'll go over those again. To apply persuasion, to prevail upon, to win over, to persuade. It's kind of like the process of changing someone's mind. And you can do that in a variety of ways. But in this particular way, you try to influence them with reason or moral considerations. Trying to influence somebody to change their mind based on reasoning or moral considerations. Well, that's the contribution of Brother Vines. So, 
uh, we see here that Paul reasoned with people and persuaded with people. And uh, that was done in a, in a context of religious unbelief. Hmm. You ever thought about the fact that some people that are religious don't believe? I can't imagine being a pastor or a minister in a denomination that doesn't believe. That'd be pretty tough, you know? It's kind of like being a carpenter and not carrying any tools around. You know, you just kind of fake it, you know, and say, well, I'm, I'm hitting it with a hammer, you know, and you're not really doing anything. You know, or I'm, I'm, now I'm screwing it in the wall and you don't even have a screwdriver. It's absurd. It's ridiculous when you think about it to be religious and not really believe. You're just going through motions. And so that's what was going on in the synagogue in Ephesus. And he was trying to reason with them and persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God. Well, uh, there's another book of the Bible called Hebrews. You all have seen that book. I personally think the writer was the Apostle Paul. And I've got some backup for that. Other people think it was Apollos. Other people think it was other folks. But if you, if you study it much, the, the thinking is very much like Paul, although the language is very different. Possibly he wrote it originally in Hebrew, and Luke came back later and translated it into Greek. It's why it kind of throws scholars off guard. But he says, whoever the writer is, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, this is a great example of what we're talking about, trying to, to, to talk with religious people whom you can't persuade because they don't believe. He says, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us just as to the Jews in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard. See, that's the problem. When you go to a synagogue like with Paul and you preach and the people listen to your words, they don't mix it with faith. And then if you're not sure about what the definition of faith is, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it gives us a great definition. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in one sense, faith is a hopeful confidence, a hopeful confidence. And it works kind of like this. If you grew up in Ephesus and you were part of the synagogue and your parents were Jewish and you were Jewish and you'd heard all these things, but you kept hearing the Old Testament and it kept pointing to the future towards great things that would happen, some guy called the Messiah that's supposed to come, the restoration of Israel to greatness, it kind of swells up a sense of hope, of expectation that something's going to happen in the future one day that the Jews would be a great nation again. Or you might think, boy, some of these things, you know, the stories of David and the stories of Samuel and the great things about Noah and Daniel. Here I am in a foreign country and Daniel struggled. Here I am, you know, in a culture that's really Gentile and, and Joseph succeeded. There's this sense of a growing confidence. So when a man finally comes to your synagogue, like the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee, a scribe of the kingdom of God, preaches the truth and completely removes the veil about the Messiah has come. It was this man. He lived a perfect life. He taught exactly what needed to be taught. He healed the sick, raised the dead, cured the lepers, healed the blind. He died a terrible death on a cross. But God accepted that as a sacrifice for sin because he was a perfect sacrifice and proved it by raising him from the dead. 
then you would just swell up and say, oh, that's the one, the one we were waiting for. And your heart would be filled with hope. You'd have confidence that God would use that man, like this preacher was saying, to one day come back and create a rule on earth that like never been seen before. And so that's kind of what we're talking about when you hear the word of God and it's mixed with faith and it has the right results. That's what the New Testament means here in this passage. So in Acts chapter 19, where we are at, some people heard Paul, mixed it with faith, and became disciples. And the word disciple means, most people say follower, but it really means a student apprentice. Student in the sense of someone who learns from a master, apprentice in the sense of somebody who learns a profession from another type of master, a master carpenter, a master plumber. The other one would be a master teacher. So that kind of person that learns and applies, takes in theory and works it out in practice is the the Bible idea of what a disciple is. Others heard Paul harden their hearts, didn't mix it with faith, and became slanderers. Went out in public and ran him down and talked poorly of him and of his way of understanding the kingdom of God. So those are the two examples. Now, I want to also talk about the fact that Paul fulfilled the prophecy of Christ back in Matthew 13. You remember we talked about in Matthew 13 that Jesus had predicted that there would be one day scribes instructed fully in the kingdom of God that would take things that were old and take things that were new and would feed the household of God. That's Paul. An expert in the Old Testament, well instructed in the life of Christ. Mix the two together to appropriately preach and feed and do the ministry in a powerful way. Paul fulfilled the prophecy of Christ. We know this by confirmation if you turn back to Acts chapter 9. Do you remember the story of when Paul was Saul? He's riding that horse heading into Damascus, he's going to persecute and destroy the believers there. And he gets knocked off his horse, a blazing light. He's struck blind for three days. And then uh, God has the Lord Jesus speak to a man named Ananias in Acts chapter 9 and, and tells him to go help Paul. And Ananias kind of resists the Lord. Can you imagine? You know, a vision of Christ and you're saying, no, no, I think that's a bad idea. I've got a better idea. You think, wow, boy, that guy's pretty audacious to do that. Um, Where I come from, we'd say bodacious. But he um, says in verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, go. When the Lord says go, you know, you can do like Jonah, you know, and head to Spain. And things go bad, you know. But uh, uh, if you say, if you hear go, and you're like the apostles, and you go, finally, in Acts chapter 9, then you see a lot of great ministry start to happen. So he says, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Notice that he considers Paul a chosen vessel for various reasons. Jesus knew Paul was very well educated as a Pharisee. He also knew Paul was a Roman citizen. Great advantages. He also knew Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin, a leadership tribe from the King Saul days. He also knew Paul was familiar with the world of 
the Mediterranean because he was from Tarsus. Paul had all these things together, but more than anything else, Jesus had chosen him um, even before he was born, according to the scriptures, to do a great thing, and that was to testify of the Lord before three groups of people. Notice the children of Israel would be Jewish people. Notice the Gentiles are non-Jewish people, but also the kings and rulers in authority. This man would go far. So we see the fulfillment of a New Testament scribe in the kingdom of heaven in the life of the Apostle Paul. So to review, we also notice that in the synagogue, when Paul got there in Ephesus, he used two methods, dialegomai, reasoning, and patho, persuasion, to speak to unconverted religious folks. Something to ponder. And then when he changes the school of Tyrannus, Paul used only dialegomai, only reasoning, with the disciples. Now, that's interesting. Because if we interpret it correctly, it means God has different ways that he used Paul to talk to different groups of people. With some, you need to reason, but you need to persuade. That would be the unconverted religious folks. But with others who are disciples, all you have to do is reason. Teach them in a reasoning way. You don't have to persuade them so much because they've already accepted the body of doctrine that you're teaching through the gospel. So he changed methods. Paul went from the synagogue approach to a rented hall. He went from reasoning and persuasion to reasoning alone. And he went from a focus on the Jews only, that would be in the synagogue, to Gentiles, Jew, Jews, the whole province, the whole San Diego County of his day. He talked to anybody and everybody in that lecture hall. So, remember, the word mixed with faith produces salvation. We know that. But the word mixed with faith also produces growth. Now, if I could make an example. Imagine I had 13 stones in my hand, and I placed them here on the stage in different spots. Those 13 stones don't amount to much, do they? They're just rocks sitting on the ground. I notice y'all have an abundance of stones here in Southern California. So it wouldn't be too hard to gather 13 stones. However, if we imagine cement building blocks, and I begin to lay a row of building blocks, then another one on top, and another one, and another one, and another one, up to 730 blocks, how big a building or a wall would we have? Tremendous. So we see a great difference between 13 little visits to a synagogue which didn't produce a lot. I mean, there was controversy, and he was about to probably get the tar beat out of him, like we say in North Carolina, because that's what happens to him a lot. Whenever he stays too long in the synagogue, they go after him. But he goes this other approach and builds a tremendous impact for that society, so much, for he, so, much so that he even threatens the economy of idolatry uh, in that area because so many people had come to faith in Christ. It's amazing. They even start bringing in their magic books. Another section, you remember reading that? And burning them, and the value was like, ooh, thousands and thousands of work days, you know, were represented in the purchase price of those magic books. So, what can we learn today? Before I ask that question, when are we supposed to stop? Noon? Like today? Oh, okay. All right. So, 
<laughs> what can we learn from this? If we understand it properly. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 13. Have you understood all these things? They said yes. He said alright. If you understand it. You're going to be like the householder. You can take from the old. Take from the new. Combine it together and feed the house. Or the guests. Or whoever comes. Let's think about it on a church wide level. The implication of this little three verse passage. Well. The church in general, not just Valley Baptist Church, but the church of the Lord in general, really needs wise and well-trained teachers, don't we? I mean, that's the future. It doesn't take but one generation of uh, disobedient people to God's word to go from a reached nation status to an unreached nation status. One generation. That's all it takes. So you need... In the church of Jesus Christ around the world, well-trained and wise teachers like Paul. But even Paul, on just a weekly basis, had a very limited effect. The 13 stones on the stage. However, on a daily basis, he was able to take those building blocks and produce a powerful impact on the society and evangelize the entire region. All of Asia Minor. So... I wonder if um, it wouldn't be good to have wise and well-trained teachers if they were able to use a private space like a lecture hall, etc. And had daily time to build into the lives of the disciples. What a powerful impact that would make to make the church of Jesus Christ very strong. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that's kind of what you got with seminaries, right? It is. But even in seminaries, we only teach once a week. We've got that same kind of, kind of diluted effect of the 13 stones on the platform. Can you get people to come to school every day? I don't know. It's interesting. Paul did it. And look at the impact he had. Something to ponder. I'm thinking about it myself. But if you collected a number of these well-trained teachers together, you imagine if you had Paul, Apollos, Peter, you know, 12 or 14, James, etc., all together in one rented location with lots of different halls that people could take all these class times together with these men and learn from them. Um, how effective would that be? Wouldn't that be amazing for men and women to be discipled to that effect? I think you could possibly turn San Diego County completely upside down with such a thing. That's what happened in the days of Paul. But it meant... It had to be daily teaching. Now, think about this on your local church level here at Valley Baptist. Um, I think when you all come here every week, you get a pretty good sermon, right? I could make the pastor leave if you want, but just for a minute while we give the real truth. But I think you wouldn't be coming back unless you weren't enthused and excited about the word of God. Amen. So once a week is great, but it's not as good. As if you daily input the word of God into your life. Now I'm trusting that some of you have good daily time with the Lord. But if you don't, I would recommend that you get into God's word every day. As a habit of life. As a spiritual discipline for your soul. There are great books out there. There are study books. But there's nothing like the Bible itself. To get into God's word. To drink deeply of it. At least daily. And you will find an incredible effect of God causing your faith to grow and to make progress. It's kind of like a greenhouse. You put a greenhouse over some plants, 
you intensify the sun, you make sure you give it water and the right kind of fertilizer, and man, those things will take off even in the wintertime. Same way. Weekly exposure is good, but it'll only be limited growth. Daily exposure will make your faith really take off. Now, on a personal level, I do recommend to you a deep and daily intake of God's Word and intimate times with God in prayer. I know some of you are, are very faithful in this, but it will cause your growth of your faith, which faith includes not only confidence but hope, to grow so much that you'll begin to spill over into this community. In other words, you'll start sharing the words of the Lord that you're getting from studying the Bible. And that's good. That's what you want. You want to be out there telling people what you're learning. If you're confident about Jesus Christ and you think he's the greatest person that ever lived, it's too big a secret to keep to yourself. It comes out naturally. If you're deeply studying and deeply learning and at his feet every day, you'll share it. It'll be a natural thing to talk with others about. So that joy that comes from the words of the Lord will spread into your community, in your workplace, your neighborhood, where you go to school, where you go to work out at the gym, whatever your daily activity lifestyle is, God will speak through you as you let the word have its effect in your life. Now, with permission, I'd like to do a personal application to my life about this passage, okay? I left the U.S. in 1998 with a family of six and we had, a, we had a great income. We had benefits. I was in the corporate world. And, man, when I stepped away from that job, I got three other job offers that were even better, which were astounding. I think it was three temptations. And went into missions. You know, we're faith missionaries. We basically raise funds to just live, to eat and be able to work and travel. We have no guaranteed salary. And that's kind of like with a family of six stepping off a cliff. Okay, now you remember the Indiana Jones movie, that one where he, the third one, and he, before they got to these new ones, they're kind of different. The one where he has to step off, and there's nothing there, and as he steps, something solid appears like a bridge underneath him. It's kind of like that. When you step off the cliff of faith to raise support and live from the gospel, God provides his invisible hand under your feet, and we've never had to look back. God's been faithful 15 solid years. He supplied for the needs of our, of our family. And so we were called to go to southern Spain, to Sevilla, the capital of the south, kind of like Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. Sevilla is the capital of southern Spain, which is Andalusia. And there we entered into an amazing adventure. Um, I'm writing a book right now. Uh, it's, it's a great book. It's a fiction trilogy. And people keep asking me, what's going to happen next? And I say, well... I don't know. I get this feeling that this story is kind of pulling me along. I'm not so much the author. It's like it's developing as it goes, and I'm just kind of along for the ride. Well, it was like that, too, because we discovered, amazingly, that um, 450 years before we got there, a whole generation of people had prayed for something to happen in our area that didn't happen until 450 years later. And we may be the fulfillment of prayers of people from almost 500 years before we've even lived. Now, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Okay? Just a little background. The Spanish people, as you know, uh, were seafaring folks. And when they found out about the discovery of the New World, 
after 1492, hundreds and hundreds of young men and some ladies, but a lot of sailors and conquerors went out and settled, conquered and settled all sorts of land around the world, especially through the Americas, came right here into this valley area and, and settled in this area. And uh, those people brought with them what they understood about life and imposed that on the natives of the area. Now, what is interesting in that, God was doing a work at that time in the history of Sevilla in that the gospel had actually penetrated that area of Spain and had begun to convince individuals of the truth of the scriptures. Now, at that time, there was an institution called the Spanish Inquisition, which was set into place in 1486 by Ferdinand of the Ferdinand-Isabel combination to severely uh, deal with nonconformity. We'll put it that way, meaning Jewish people, Muslim people, witches, etc. It was set up to destroy those that didn't fit in with their opinion of society. And so by the time the Protestant movement came along in the 1530s, that machine was oiled and ready. So the Protestant movement really didn't stand a chance. It only lasted 30 years in Spain. But amazingly, part of that time uh, radiated out of an old monastery set in a town called Santi Ponce, just to the northwest of Sevilla. And this little monastery, there were monks living there, who some of them were involved with a secret underground church in downtown Sevilla back in the 1530s and 40s. As a result, uh, one man that was living in Switzerland, uh, working as a printing assistant, who's not a believer, saw materials coming through from Calvin and Luther, and he was just working there. He was a Spaniard trying to make a living. One day, materials came through in Spanish. And he sat down and read them and was convinced about faith in Christ alone for salvation. And he repented and became a true believer, headed back to Spain, joined that secret underground church in Sevilla, became a deacon, and eventually began the incredible journey of smuggling in forbidden literature into Spain. With time, the monastery was the place where that literature was deposited. The monks there got very excited about that literature and began to study it. Upwards of 80% of them converted to true faith in Christ alone for salvation. And a movement was launched that led to over 3,000 people coming to faith in Christ, all because of the application of the word of God. The problem was they didn't have a Bible in Spanish. And just like with Martin Luther and Wycliffe and Tyndale and others in various countries, uh, these monks from that old monastery decided to start translating the Bible into modern Spanish. Now, we see today the impact of having translated Bibles changes our lives. Well, they wanted the same for their generation. They got fairly far into it, but then the emperor of uh, Europe, who was the king of Spain, retired, Charles I, and his son Philip II came to the throne and became the emperor, and he was an avowed arch enemy of all Protestant faith as well as other religions. And so the monks decided to take the, the, the initial translation and flee from their, from their country, flee for their lives, wound up in Geneva, Switzerland, and eventually went to England and finished the translation in 1569. That's called the Biblia del Oso, uh, the famous Reina Valera version. That was uh, Casiodoro de Reina, 1569, revised in 1602 by Cipriano de Valera. One of those two translators, that's the most popular Bible in the Spanish-speaking world today. It was born in that old monastery. 
one of the two translators said the following. If one day God would have mercy on Sevilla, it would only be right one day that the monastery of San Isidoro del Campo would become a university chiefly dedicated to the study of theology. Greater things than this God has done in our day. And we found out about this quote only about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, we are actually in the process of negotiating with the owners to be able to purchase that old building, reform it, and turn it into a university chiefly dedicated to the study of theology. That's why we're there. We're answering those old prayers. And we formed church-based studies that became a Bible institute, that became a Bible college, that now have become a seminary. It's a branch campus of Southern California Seminary, all in process God leading us, pulling us along to possibly fulfill the hopes and dreams of a generation that were destroyed in the cruel fires of the Inquisition back in 1560. We need your prayers because we're there in a hostile society. Spain nowadays is 28% atheist, according to latest newspaper results, 22% practicing Roman Catholic, and about 50% of people are just kind of Roman Catholic in name only, but don't actually have real faith. For the longest time, the gospel in our area has been resisted and fought against. Um, there's even history back to the first century where true believers were destroyed in the local Roman amphitheaters, sent to the lions. 16th century, they burned them at the stake. Nowadays, they just ignore us. <laughs> That's pretty awful, too. <laughs> you know, you talk to people all day long and they're apathetic. Well, we discovered at our little seminary about three years ago after studying a course on servant leadership. Part of the problem in Spanish society is it's like any nation that went out and conquered the world. Uh, they have a terrible problem with pride. I'll repeat that. Terrible problem with pride. And so if you notice the French, the British, the Spanish, in some ways the United States people too, Anybody that's gone out and actually conquered nations and ruled over lots of territory and have pushed other people into submission tend to have a terrible problem with pride and arrogancy as a culture. And so that's the situation in our area. And three times God says in the Bible, uh, in Proverbs, in James, and in First Peter, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it doesn't matter if you're a church pastor, if you're a seminary leader, if you're a bank president, if you're the man that sweeps the streets, if you're a homemaker, if you're a teacher, if you call yourself Christian or not, if you're proud, God parks you right there. It's not going to go forward with you until you repent of that pride. You have to deal with it because God refuses to work with a proud attitude, an arrogant attitude, a vain attitude. He stops the progress of that person right there. But if you repent and change and become humble, he begins working with you again. Doesn't matter what your position. Doesn't matter what you believe. If you notice, think back in your life on all the people you've ever really liked and admired that were older than you. Whether they were believers or not, didn't you love them because they were humble? Think about the people that you've always couldn't stand to be around. Wasn't it because they were jerks? Arrogant? Proud? Even in the world standards, people know they can smell pride coming down the street. And we respond well to humility. These are principles God's put in the human heart 
social laws. They're the same as natural laws. Just like we step off the roof, we're going to hit the sidewalk, it's going to hurt. You know, if we choose to be proud, we're going to hit God's hand and it's going to hurt. Now, I've got a theory, and I shared it in the first service, and a couple of people really liked it. <clears throat> it's not mine, probably. I probably picked it up somewhere. You know how you, how many people got computers? Laptops or towers, it's about everybody. Those things are everywhere, have you noticed? When you start them up in the morning, you know how it goes through all those little screens and it has the lights that flicker and play a little song and maybe has your favorite grandkid or your dog or something shows up on the screen. What it's doing when it does that, it's booting up. It's restoring itself back to the defaults that are in the system. In other words, it goes back to what it's told to do by design of your operating system. Well, I think the human heart, every morning we wake up, boots up to pride. And that's why the Lord said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Because he knows we have to slay that pride every morning we get out of bed. If you don't, you continue to go your way in arrogance and let your heart boot up to natural self-reliance, trusting your own cleverness, counting on your degrees, thinking that your family heritage or your race or whatever is something great. God will oppose you all day long. Some of us worry and wonder, why are we not getting anywhere? How come we're not very effective? I think we need to deal with this on a daily basis. So in this class on servant leadership, we talked about these things. And our Spanish students said, you know, we're not dealing with pride in our hearts. And we had to talk about that. We made a kind of a rule of confidentiality. That's why I'm not telling you what their names are. And we let them work it through, confess it to the Lord. And um, there was weeping. There was real deep, heartfelt work done. And consequently, we started seeing for the first time in about 12 years of ministry, amazing results when it came to evangelism. Amazing response when it comes to gathering churches. Doors starting to fly open for missionary work. People with desire to leave their society and go out as cross-cultural ministries. Up until that point, everybody said, why don't we leave Spain? It's got great food and we have fun. It's a wonderful place to live. Who wants to go to other parts of the world? Some even started fasting, which is really unheard of because Spanish people love their food. Why would we fast? I mean, gosh, we suffered enough during the Franco days. Things are good now. We should eat all we can. Fasting is a dumb idea. I don't care what that professor said. You know, that kind of attitude. Well, we saw changes, and they started to actually begin to focus on certain groups in society. One was elderly people and started to get response. People elderly were interested in changing to faith in Christ. Another was working with drug addicts and alcoholics, the really poor of society. Another was taking time to notice the immigrant groups in our area and reaching out to them, starting to have compassion on them and helping them with language learning, how to get their residence visas processed, taking care of their children, providing them with clothing and food, and then finally jail ministry. What we discovered, we're not that smart, um, but we we did find something in the Bible. (laughs) There's actually four groups talked about in the Bible. Where in each case, the scripture says, remember these people. It says, remember the widows. Just like that group of elderly people we're working with. It says, remember the poor. 
just like with drug addicts and alcoholics. It says, remember the foreigner who's among you because you were once a foreigner in Egypt. And it says, remember the prisoners. Twice it says that in the scriptures. So as we focused on those four groups, and I'd recommend that to you guys here in this particular area of your neighborhoods and communities. Think about those four groups. When we emphasize with our hearts the things that are on the hearts of God, heart of God, why would he say four times remember them unless they were important to God? You will see response too. And it's amazing because God works when we obey him. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. He's our example. He's our model. He's our apostle of the high faith. He's our, our high priest. Everything that we admire and love about the best of humanity is found in Jesus. And he's the perfect image of the invisible God, the perfect reflection of your true character and nature. All that we need to know about you is found in him. And we're so thrilled with him. We're so excited about him. And we just want to know him better. And yet, some of us are called to teach about him, to be like those scribes that uh, take from the old and the new like a good householder and prepare food for God's people. I pray that we will have fed well and been, had our souls filled with your word today and that it would excite us about getting deeper into your word and sharing that with a lost and dying world, even in this county. In Jesus' name, amen.